And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many of you have, as a parent have ever heard your child say, well, that's not fair. What is your retort? Yeah, life's not fair, kiddo. Get over it, right? Uh, we all want it to be fair, right? We want God to be fair, or so we think. In Romans 9, 11 through 13, we looked at this last week, Paul wrote, though they were not yet born, he's talking about Esau and Isaac, okay, they're twins in, in Rebekah, though they were not yet born and had death, done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebekah, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Paul knew that if we were tracking with him, we would respond, that's not fair. Now, as I pointed out last time, if Paul, if Paul is saying that God made his decision to bless Jacob and reject Esau based on the fact that God foresaw that Jacob would decide to trust in God, but Esau would reject God, no one would have thought to accuse God of being unfair. That's perfectly fair. So there's no problem with that. But clearly, that's not what Paul meant. He goes out of his way to make it clear that God chose Jacob and rejected Esau um, apart from anything that they would do, right? He does it while they're still in the womb, before they've done anything good or bad, so that, he tells us specifically, God's purpose according to election might continue, might stand. But we don't like that. We want things to be equal and fair, we want everyone to have an equal shot at salvation, and we want that salvation to be linked in some small way to something that we do. We want to be able to say, I'm saved because I made a decision by my own free will to believe in Jesus. Then I can take some credit for my wise decision or for my faith. We'll also note that, that even though Paul knew that this line of reasoning would provoke objections, he doesn't soften it in any way to avoid controversy, but instead he asserts it even more strongly. Some, some pastors, to avoid such controversy, they won't teach on the doctrine of, elect of election. They know that it upsets people, so they soften it or they explain it in a way that makes God seem just completely fair across the board. But Paul doesn't do that. He raises the objections that he knows we will all have. And then rather than softening his point, he actually strengthens it in verses 16 and 18 that we're going to look at in just a few minutes. Why did he do that? Well, first, he did it because the Holy, Holy Spirit inspired him to do it. Paul's epistles are the inspired Word of God given for our spiritual understanding and for our profit. Now, even though some of his writings are hard to understand and the untaught and the unstable distort them, as Peter tells us, nonetheless, they are Scripture. They're given by the Spirit to make us wise unto salvation. Second, Paul wrote these things because they are in line with the rest of Scripture. If you have something like the NASB, the NASB actually in the New Testament capitalizes all of the Old Testament passages that it uses. So it's easy to see where somebody's quoting the Old Testament in the NASB. Well, in, in chapter 9, Paul cites the Old Testament in verses 9, or excuse me, 7, 9, 12, 13, 
15, 17, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, and 33. That's over one-third of the passages in Romans 9 have Old Testament references. Furthermore, Paul believed what Scripture says God says. For example, in, in, in Romans 9, 17, he says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, and then he quotes from Exodus 9, 16, which is actually God speaking to Moses. Moses has not yet written the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. But what God said to Moses is what Scripture said to Pharaoh. Scripture is authoritative because it is God speaking to us. So Romans 9 does not consist of the opinions of the Apostle Paul, which we are free to accept if we agree with or to ignore if we disagree. Romans 9 is God speaking to us with His authority through Paul to tell us what we know, need to know to be assured of our salvation. And that's what Paul's main subject here in Romans 9 is all about. How can we know that God's promise of salvation will not fail? Well, Paul's answer is that, that our salvation is secure because it does not depend on us. Rather, it depends on God's purpose according to election. Now, as the sovereign of the universe, uh, God always accomplishes what He purposes to do. He chooses some for salvation apart from anything that they do, and He rejects others apart from anything that they do. We need to submit joyfully to this truth because it is God's authoritative revelation of Himself. Paul knew that some would still mutter, but that's not fair. So he teaches here, as the righteous sovereign over all, God is not unjust to grant mercy to some and to harden others because all deserve his judgment. Now, I'm, listen closely. If you catch these next few sentences, it's going to make understanding all of this a lot easier. On the basis of justice, some, such as Esau and Pharaoh, they receive judgment. That's where justice leads you, judgment. On the basis of mercy, others like Jacob and his dad Isaac and his dad Abraham, they receive love and salvation. Here's the kicker. No one receives injustice. Why? Because we all deserve judgment. Does that make sense? No one gets injustice because all deserve judgment. Now, with that as an overview, let's work through Paul's reasoning. Number one, as the righteous sovereign over all, it is outrageous to think that God could treat anyone unjustly. Paul is responding to what he knew many would think about his statement there in verse 13 that God loved uh, Jacob and hated Esau. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says. Paul is saying that the very question itself is outrageous. By virtue of who he is, God cannot possibly be unjust. Calvin comments, Monstrous surely is the madness of the human mind, that it is more disposed to charge God with unrighteousness than to blame itself for blindness. 
James Boyce points out, even if God should save people on the basis of something in them, such as faith or good works or whatever, this would actually be injustice since people's backgrounds are unequal. Now, his point is that due to their natural temperament or their being raised in a believing family or whatever, it's easier for some to be more trusting. And for the same reasons, it's easier for some to be good moral people. And if God's election were based on those factors, it would not be fair to those who are raised in a violent or immoral or pagan background. Also, to raise the question of fairness, that presupposes that you have rights that are being violated. But if you have no rights then you have no basis to claim that someone is treating you unfairly. Now, because we've all sinned without excuse thousands of times against God's holy standards, we have no right to accuse Him of being unjust if He does not grant us mercy and salvation. His justice would only bring us what we deserve, which is judgment. Jesus illustrated this truth there in Matthew 20. Early in the morning, a landowner, he goes out into the marketplace and he finds some workers and says, come work for me for the day, I'll pay you a denarius. A denarius was a typical wage for a day laborer at that time. Mid-morning, he went back, hired more workers, uh, agreeing to pay them whatever was right. He did the same thing at noon and then at mid-afternoon. And then an hour before sunset, he went and got more men and brought them. Well, when evening came, he called all the workers together and he began paying them, beginning with the last group. Even though they had only worked for one hour, he paid them a denarius. So the guys that had been there all day and had been, you know, bearing the heat of the day said, oh, man, we got a real payday coming if he's paying them a denarius. But what did they get? They got a denarius as well. So they grumbled against the landowner as being unfair. But he told them, I paid you what we agreed on. Take your wages and go. Am I not free to be generous with these last workers if I want to? The landowner would have been unfair if he had not given that first group what they deserved. They agreed to a denarius. He paid them a denarius. That's fair. The last group received grace, which the owner was free to give. As sinners, Jacob and Esau both deserved God's wrath. Esau received wrath. Jacob received mercy. And there's no unfairness on God's part for treating him, treating them in that way. Well, number two, as a righteous sovereign over all, God is free to show mercy to whomever He wishes. In verse 15, Paul cites Exodus 33, 19 to explain why God is not unjust to show mercy, while in verse 16 he draws the conclusion. He says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now at first, that quote from Exodus 33, it doesn't sound much like an explanation. It sounds more like a restatement of the problem, namely that God is arbitrary, that He's unfair. So we really need to understand the context in which God spoke these words to Moses. Moses had gone up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. While he was there, the people grew restless. What's happened to this Moses? He's been gone a long time. They asked Aaron to make 
an idol. So he, he cast this golden calf, which they all worshipped. They were all guilty of gross idolatry. After Moses destroyed the golden calf and executed judgments on the leaders, he went back up to the mountain to make atonement for their sin. Now, in the context, Moses, just like Paul in Romans 9, 3, he prayed that if God would not forgive the people, then he could blot out Moses out of his book. Sound familiar? That's what Paul was praying. Well, God replied that he would punish those who had sinned. Moses com continued to plead with God for God's presence to go with them as they went forward. Then Moses boldly asked God to show him his glory in 33.18. In verse 19, God replied, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. To paraphrase, God is telling Moses, this is the essence of who I am. This is my name. My glory is displayed by my freedom to show mercy and compassion to whomever I wish. I'm not obligated to show mercy to any because all have sinned and justly deserve my judgment. But I am free to show my glory both by giving mercy to some and by withholding it from others. That is who I am. Thomas Schreiner, he explains, No human deserves his mercy. The choice of Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau must be construed as a merciful one. In other words, the stunning thing for Paul was not that God rejected Ishmael and Esau, but that he chose Isaac and Jacob, for they did not deserve to be included in his merciful and gracious purposes. Human beings are apt to criticize God for excluding anyone, but this betrays a theology that views salvation as something God ought to bestow on all equally. What is fundamental for God is the revelation of His glory and the proclamation of His name, and He accomplishes this by showing mercy and by withholding it. God's righteousness is upheld because He manifests it by revealing His glory, both in saving and in judging. I know that's an extended quote, but I thought it was well worth it. Now, there's only a slight difference between mercy and compassion. Compassion focuses on the feeling of sympathy for those who are in misery, while mercy, mercy is the action that, that goes to relieve that misery. Both words point to the underlying fact that we all have sinned and thus, thus all deserve judgment. If you want to talk about justice, we all justly deserve condemnation. But God doesn't give everyone what they deserve. To some, he shows mercy and compassion according to his will, not according to anything that sinners merit or deserve. Now, Paul reinforces this by his conclusion there in verse 16. So then it does not depend on man who wills, uh, depend on, excuse me, on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, the it, okay, refers to God's bestowal of mercy, it does not depend on man's decision to accept Jesus, that's human will, or on human effort, that's exertion. 
Rather, it depends on God who has mercy. Schreiner comments again, this verse excludes in the clearest possible terms the notion that free will is the fundamental factor in divine election. You see, Paul is saying that God freely determines according to the counsel of His own will those to whom He shows mercy. Now also, verse 16 excludes the idea that we determine our salvation by exercising faith that originates within us somehow. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he explains, if man can originate faith, then it's something that he can do. It becomes a work that merits the reward of salvation. And if that were so, then no one would ever bring the charge of that God is unfair or unjust. Jacob believed, and God rewarded him with salvation. Esau did not believe and was judged. That sounds fair. But Paul is asserting that the difference between these two men was not anything they did or didn't do. The difference was that God showed mercy to one, but withheld it from the other. End quote. As the sovereign and righteous God, He's free to do that. That is His prerogative. Sinners have no claim against Him. But some contend that God's love demands that He shows mercy to all equally. Any of y'all ever heard of Dave Hunt? Well, Dave Hunt brazenly states, It is not loving, period, for God to damn for eternity anyone He could save. Now, his contention, it assumes that God is not actually able to save anyone. He'd like to save everyone, but because of man's free will, God just simply cannot pull it off. But Paul's next two verses soundly refute the assertion that God would save everyone if only He could. Number three, as a righteous sovereign over all, God is free to harden whom He wishes. For what purpose? To display His glory. Verse 17 defends God's righteousness in withholding mercy from some, as he did with Esau. Paul writes, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Then in verse 18, Paul draws a conclusion that sums up the entire discussion here. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. To point out the obvious, Paul does not say, he has mercy on whoever believes in him, and he hardens whoever does not believe in him. No, that would be to stand Paul's meaning on its head. Again, we're not dealing here with Paul's opinions. We're dealing with what Scripture says, which is what God says. As such, we need to submit to it joyfully, as I explained last week, because it reveals something about God's perfection as God that we need to know. We had a great discussion last Sunday night talking about this whole issue. And I invite you, I invite you back tonight, 6 o'clock, we'll be here. We call it Sermon Take Two. So if you if this if this you know uh, begs some questions in you, bring them tonight. That's what we're going to talk about. God is saying that I mean, as Paul is saying that God is not unjust to raise up a proud sinner on the stage of the world history and use him for God's greater purpose of de demonstrating His power and causing His name to be widely proclaimed. 
And God did exactly that by hardening Pharaoh's heart and bringing the plagues on Egypt. That culminated, of course, in the destruction of Pharaoh and his army as they pursued uh, Israel across the divided Red Sea. Now, God could have chosen to be merciful to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. He could have softened their hearts. He could have told them about the need to put the blood on the doorpost to escape the wrath of the destroying angel who killed all of their firstborn. But God chose rather to harden Pharaoh's heart for the greater purpose of displaying God's glory in power and judgment so that his fame would spread throughout the earth. As the righteous sovereign over all, God has the right to harden sinners for his greater purpose of displaying his glory and power in righteous judgment. Some try to get God off the hook by arguing that God only hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And Schreiner counters a careful analysis of the Old Testament text also reveals that God's hardening of Pharaoh precedes and undergirds Pharaoh's self-hardening. And it's an imposition on the test text to conclude that God's hardening is a response to the hardening of the human beings, end quote. You see, God announces twice to Moses in advance that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And it's only after this that the account says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now, this doesn't mean that God coerced or caused Pharaoh to sin. God doesn't cause sin. Pharaoh was responsible for his own sin. But the Bible has many examples of God using even uh, evil people, even Satan himself, to accomplish God's sovereign purpose for His glory. All, all He has to do is withdraw His restraint and leave sinners to their own sin. And when He is through using these sinners for His purposes, He justly judges them for their sin. But it is blasphemy to accuse God of being unloving because He did not save them all. Everyone justly deserves God's judgment because of sin. He's not unjust to grant mercy to some to display the glory of His grace and to harden others to display the glory of His righteous judgment. I read a story about R.C. Sproul when he was teaching a freshman Old Testament class at a Christian college. It had 250 students in it. The very first day, he told the class there's going to be three papers. One is due September 30th, one is due October 30th, and one is due November 30th. So that was very plain. On September 30th, first paper, he received 225 papers while 25 students came up to him begging for mercy. Please, Dr. Sproul, we didn't uh, budget our time wisely. We're still getting used to the rigors of college. Uh, we'll do better next time. Please give us a little more time. Don't give us an F. Dr. Sproul said, okay, you have two days to get those papers in. October 30th, he received only 200 papers. 50 students were late. They pled, Dr. Sproul, we had midterms. Uh, we had homecoming. We had all sorts of other pressures on us. Please give us one more chance. And he says, okay, you have two more days to get those papers in. The students were literally singing, we love you, Professor Sproul. He was a hero on campus. On November 30th, only 150 papers were turned in on time. 100 students were late. Where are your term papers, he asked. Don't worry about it, Dr. Sproul. We'll get them to you shortly. He got out his grade book. Johnson, your paper is late. That's an F. Well, that's not fair. Harrison, 
Your paper's late. That's an F. Well, that's not fair. Sproul says, is it justice that you really want? And he goes, yes. All right, you were late on your last paper last month. So I'm making that one an F as well. Does anybody else want justice? Dr. Sproul explains, if we experience grace once, we're grateful, we're overjoyed. If we, if we experience it twice, we get a little bit jaded towards it. And the third time, we expect it and actually demand it. If God didn't choose, doesn't choose me, then there's something wrong with Him, not with me. But grace, by definition, is something that God is not required to give to anyone. It's undeserved. Rather than asking, why not everyone? We should ask, why anyone? Why me? God forget, forbid. But if any of you are damned on judgment day, you're not going to be able to blame God by, to say, by saying, it's not fair, you didn't choose me. Rather, God will be glorified in judging you for your sin. On the other hand, if you're saved, you won't be able to boast in your faith, but only in God's grace. Now, if you have not yet received God's abundant mercy, then cry out like that publican in that parable by Jesus in Luke 18, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, your mercy uh, is what it's all about. We don't understand it, but we thank you and we praise you for it. And God, if there's anybody in here today that doesn't know your son Jesus, and Father, we ask that you would open their eyes, take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh to see Jesus for who he really is. Be merciful to them and forgive their sins. Open their eyes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're just going to have a, a short invitation this morning, give you a chance to respond. It may be that you're out there and something has struck a chord with you and you understand that you do not have a relationship with God or with His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, there's verses there in John where Jesus says, He who does not have the Son does not have the Father. So you, you have to have them both, <laughs> okay? Uh, so I'm just asking you, if you know that you're not a sinner, the remedy is only the mercy of God. That's the only thing that you can cry out for. The only thing you deserve, you can bring whatever you want to the table and say, well, what about this God? What about this God? And Isaiah says that those works that we bring, he calls them filthy rags. They're nothing in the eyes of God. The only thing that you can do, what, what do you do before when you go before a judge and you cry out mercy? What are you admitting? You're guilty. I'm guilty, have mercy on me. That's what the publican did. He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He simply beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, he went home that day justified, right with God. If you need to be right with God, you call out for his mercy today. If you're a believer, uh, this is not the shallows that we've been swimming in here for the past couple of weeks and for the next couple of weeks as well. Uh, this is this is definitely the deep end. We see some things we see some things about God that probably, uh, if if you're unfamiliar with it, I'm sure makes you feel a little uncomfortable. But as I said, God, uh, Paul, God, the Holy Spirit put this in here for our good, for our profit, for our ultimate salvation. You, these may be some things you've got to deal with in your thoughts about God. 
and about how you were saved. Uh, election, which is kind of the back background, what we've been talking about, choosing one and not the other, that, that's election. Uh, that is the most humbling doctrine in all of Scripture. You know why? Because at roots it says it wasn't up to you. You were chosen by God. For what reason? I don't know. Ephesians 1.5 says, according to His good pleasure. That's all we got, folks. We trust God beyond that. I hope that's you as a believer, that you understand that your salvation comes from Christ and Christ alone. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, or 6, excuse me, there at the end, I'm not going to boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. I hope that's your boast. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.